This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. Oddly enough, I'm here today with the person who was my first guest 15 years ago, back in. Uh, February of 07, Ray Bjorkland, then with uh, Federal Sources, Rayman, was uh, was my very first guest. Welcome back. We'll try not to make it 15 years. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> um, so first off, tell people uh, who you are. Ray, Ray is with uh, Birch Grove Consulting. Tell people who you are, what you do, Ray. All right, I've been at this uh, federal stuff for about 50 years. In the last uh, 25, 20, 25 years, I've been on the outside of the federal government, helping people understand what the federal government is doing or what they're planning to do. So the kind of consulting I do, I call it market consulting. Some people call it market analysis. It's not classic market research. But it is a way of looking at many, many different data sources. I use about 60 different data sources and understanding in context exactly what is happening, what the government plans to do. Okay. So basically, you're telling people the directions that they can go where they are most likely to find an opportunity. That is correct. You know, I'm not uh, in the tactical opportunity business. There are people out there that do that. I'm not a relationship broker. There are plenty of people that do that around the Washington Beltway. Uh, But I'm, you know, doing a lot of very systematic analysis of what the market is about to do, or in some cases, what it has done. Okay. Well, let me let me throw out some scenarios that I run across on a regular basis, particularly with um, some closer to startups and some very smalls and people who have won some opportunistic contracts, bluebirds, if you will. So the feedback they give me is, well, you know, we're we're just looking on FBO or pick a board and uh, going after anything that's in our NAICS code. Um, regardless of the agency, regardless of anything else, how good is this as a go-to-market strategy for the government market? All right. In that little scenario, I see three things that are not necessarily wrong, but probably not as effective as they could be. First of all, being going to FedBizOps, and there's it's a uh, you know an important platform, but if you're responding to that and you're selling a commodity, you're probably okay. If you're responding to an announcement of a professional services contract, you're probably far too late in the cycle. You didn't do enough advanced planning to understand that that contract or potentially some spending would be coming to the way of the um, 
professional services contractors. And the, the second thing that I see ineffective with that scenario is looking at NAICS codes. Uh, the government and industry have different perceptions about the importance of a NAICS code. And on both sides of the table, it's very mixed. But fundamentally, a NAICS code, which is defined by a Census Bureau, is to uh, identify the kind of business, not the business that you are performing, but the kind of business establishment. So sometimes you're going to get a wire telecommunications carrier as a code. That's a type of business, but it's not necessarily the work that's going to be done. So that sometimes is is a disconnect. And then the third thing is, you know, looking for any opportunities across the government. There are about 375 sub-agencies across the government in the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. And each one of those sub-agencies has a different kind of behavior. So if you're not in tune with that particular behavior, you're likely to miss the market or waste a lot of money chasing something that you'll never win. Define agency behavior there, please. Sure. Agencies, and there, there are some that are very, have a lot of commonality. And certainly there's a common set of regulations like the Federal Acquisition Regulation. But there are different policies about interpreting the Federal Acquisition Reg, and in some cases the statutes. So you think on a grand scale, like uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, they basically have a veterans first policy that says that we intend to give as much work as we can to service disabled veteran owned small businesses. Other agencies don't operate like that. They have socioeconomic goals, but they don't necessarily operate like that. Then another example, there are some agencies who still are stuck with LPTA, lowest price, technically acceptable. Uh, and that isn't necessarily uh, the approach that more sophisticated agencies take, where they are looking for a broader view of best value. And then there are people involved. I mean, it's a very human thing. And so you'll have contracting officers, contract organizations that act very differently than the program managers in the same agency. So very different behaviors. Okay. Now we hooked up again when you spoke at, uh, on, on a uh, call that's sponsored by government marketing university, the, uh, the morning ideation calls. And during your presentation, you had uh, three pandemic tales. Let's start sharing those, please. Those were quite interesting. Okay, uh, because that was sort of the, the essence of that particular session with uh, Government Marketing University. I look back on what had happened in the first six months or so of this year. There was a training services company that came to me who does very sophisticated technical training. And you say, oh, technical training. Well, yeah, some of that can be done online, but a lot of it's done in a classroom environment. And that was the situation of this particular company, well-established technical training company. And when they asked me to do a real assessment of the market, exactly which direction the market's going, 
during the time that I'm doing that analysis, things were blowing up. The pandemic was starting to become very real in the United States. And so when I finished the work, I was on a call with the executives. And I said, this is not a pretty story. While I was not directed or charged to look at the pandemic, that is an important ongoing factor, market driver right now. It's been going kind of south for what your offerings are, and it's going to go even farther south because of the pandemic. And the the executives on the line said, thank you, because you have confirmed in very quantitative form exactly what we thought was happening. And because we thought it was happening, we have pivoted to make almost all of our offerings online. So it was kind of a good news story because it gave them the data that reaffirmed their intuition, their decision. So that's one example. Okay. Hold on. We'll get to the next examples after the break because I I don't want to interrupt a story with a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Ray Bjorklund. So um, you can find him at birchgroveconsulting.com. Is there a hyphen in Birchgrove Consulting? Correct. Okay, birchgrove-consulting.com. Ray and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Ray Bjorklund of Birchgrove Consulting. Ray, go to your second pandemic story, please. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. It was a a client that I did work for um, about five years ago, and they came back because they wanted an update of the analysis. And they said, oh, because this was back in April, actually, when the contract was being written. They said, oh, by the way, could you look at what the pandemic has done, whether or not it has given agencies more money to buy the kinds of services that we're interested in? And so besides delivering a 212-chart deck for their uh, update of the analysis that I did several years ago, I looked at that. And as I looked and analyzed the actual supplementary appropriations from Congress through the several CARES Act uh, supplements, uh, supplemental appropriations bills, I couldn't find anything that really related to this particular company. Yeah, there's money that's being spent on some contract support, like additional uh, deep cleaning from the janitorial services, custodial services, telecommunications to support increased teleworking. There's a lot of stuff. And they heard what I had to say. They were a little bit disappointed, but they said, good, you've told us what we were hoping to establish. And so, you know, all the other work, which is about $3.6 billion worth of work for them, you know, they have plenty to go on, but they they are not going to get distracted by the potential stimulus dollars. All right, and then the, the third story here related to the pandemic is a, this was actually uh, about 10 years ago. This company came to us back when I was working for a different firm and was looking for the market sizing. They, uh, they produce, they actually distribute, they don't produce durable workplace products for both the office environment and healthcare environments. So these are small scale investments that the government has to make 
to improve or or make their workplace or their healthcare environment more effective. And the CEO who was involved in the, the work a decade ago came back to me and said, okay, we need an update for this, but we really want to take advantage of where the pandemic may be driving the market. And yes, for workplaces, it is driving the market. So I came up with a prospectus for them that showed how I was going to be looking at the overall market sizing, market potential, but also looking at how the workplace would specifically require certain new components of these work durable workplace products. And they were excited. But then their director of sales stepped in and said, oh, well, you know, I've been approached by one of these market intelligence services who's going to give us what we need between now and the end of the fiscal year, the old fourth quarter spending thing. And so they decided not to do the strategic stuff. Now, they may come back this fall, but I believe that they're really missing the strategic window that was necessary for them to change their whole approach to the market, not only make those tactical sales in the fourth quarter, but also be positioned so that they could start influencing what the healthcare environment and the office environment of the future is going to be for the federal government. Okay, so when you talk about influencing, are you talking about the company producing content, thought leadership materials to explain their view of what should be coming down the pike? Yeah, that's part of it. But it's also having the stories to go around the products that they're offering, how they can configure the products to, say, create a uh, better health barrier, even in an operating room of a hospital, or to create improved social distancing in an office environment, you know, keeping people from congregating in the kitchen, for instance. Mm -hmm. So that was a way to look for the ways that they could configure their offerings, the various lines that they carry as a distributor, and be able to tell those stories to potential customers in the federal government. Okay, so the sales guy steps in, and obviously he's worried about quota for Q4, and he's ignoring the strategic aspect of this. And again, that you know that's something that we both have heard probably more times than we we care to think about. You know the uh, you know this is a must win situation. There's this crisis I have to deal with first. All I want is, you know, a a simple analysis. I don't need to know what's coming down over the next, you know, 12, 24, 36, 48, 60 months. Uh, You know, the bid on anything approach. I mean, there's a ton of ways to have just a totally bad strategic plan. I, I know this has been a bugaboo for you. And and you're the guy who kind of solves that problem for them. I hope to come in after you and help them with the marketing of that once they have that strategic plan in place. But what, what I mean, what do you say to people who start conversations with you like that? Well, I use many of the same words that you've just used. 
pointing out to them that they need to be better positioned for the future. I can help you with the tactical stuff, but what are you going to do next month? Who are you going to hire? What kinds of expertise are you going to need? Are you going to need more warehouse space? Are you going to need improved uh, you know, plant operations? Are you going to need to beef up your R&D? You know, I was working with a, a company that had a, a chemical detector that they were trying to sell the state and local governments. And when I pointed out to them that as they were really getting ready for launch, product launch, and I said, what's your price point? They said, about $3,000. That's our going in price point. I said, you're talking to people in the state and local governments who complain bitterly for having to spend $1,000 on a laptop. And now you expect to sell this. And, you know, they hadn't really thought through what the strategy was for getting that price point down or at least telling a better story around the offering so that they could convince the state and local government to buy the particular product. I try to tell these people, but sometimes they just say, as you heard from that workplace environment company distributor, you know, that they want to go be tactical for at least the next several months. And I said, okay, fine. Uh, we'll talk, you know, the, talking the VP of marketing and we're going to have a conversation again in the middle of the fall and find out how did it go? Yeah. I mean, you know, both of us have had, had this scenario. So let's start looking at a real pipeline profile. You mentioned earlier that there's roughly 375 sub-agencies in the government. So not just federal, but the courts and uh, Congress as well. So the vast majority of those are in the executive branch. But when you get a call, somebody says, I want to sell to the government. Yeah, don't don't laugh too hard. Uh, <laughs> sure you do. Uh, who, who the hell doesn't? Because uh, it's easy, right? Yeah, so yeah. how do you parse this down a bit? Uh, well, as I said earlier, take a very systematic approach. First of all, if this is a client that says, I want to sell to the government. Okay, what are you going to sell? Services, product. What kinds of services? What kind of product? And to be able to, to get some degree of alignment right off the bat as to how this could potentially help the government generically. But then it's a matter of taking those particular agencies. And when I say there are sub-agencies, there's also a bunch of independent agencies that, that are in that 375 count. So that's just the, the large population of agencies. And as we talked about earlier, many of these agencies have different behaviors. So I, I educate the client on that to begin with. You got to know that there are different behaviors. So now let's look at what the budgets and what the plans say as to what they want to spend their money on. And when I start to see like in the case of professional services, when I start to see agencies that are, have a big uptick in their planned spending for professional services, they say, hmm, that could be a potential. So now let's put that in that smaller group in the pipeline, if you will. Uh, you know, maybe in, like in this recent case, there were like 70 
sub agencies that would be possibly a good match for that particular client, professional services client. And then I said, all right, we need to look at what makes a good customer for you. So there are a lot of characteristics in that relationship between an agency, a buyer, or a user, and the company. And if the chemistry is not there, it's probably not going to work very well. So let's narrow it down to those kinds of things that you really want to pursue, that you're well-positioned to pursue. Not only have you got the offerings in place, but you've got the contract vehicles, you've got the relationships, or you can build the relationships. And that might take it down to, say, 15, a dozen or so different agencies. And now we can really dig in and we can focus. So you're not, you, the client, are not spending your money chasing pipe dreams. Okay. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return with Ray right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with uh, Ray Bjork. And if you didn't hear the opening, Ray was my first guest on Amtower Off Center, like the first week of February in 2007. So uh, we have we have a bit of a history here. So um, plans, budgets, appropriations, how do you use these to help people understand where they should be focusing? Yeah, well, looking at plans generally or policies as they evolve from uh, a particular, in a particular agency, it gives you a sense of what direction they want to take. You know, maybe they want to, quote unquote, outsource more. I mean, there was a time back in, in DOD's period during Rumsfeld uh, where there was a real initiative to do a lot more outsourcing. So that's a policy. And then you start to see how is that manifested in the budget? And people look at budgets and they say, ooh, trillions of dollars. I said, yeah, but what is realistically the budget that you can chase? In other words, what is your addressable budget specifically for your offerings? That might only be $2 billion. That's still attractive. But where are those $2 billion? So we look at the budgets to see where those shifts are starting to occur in the kinds of spending. And there's a dozen kinds of spending and the kinds of spending that are going to relate to that particular client. And that's fine. That's the president's request that goes to Congress. That's the president's budget. And I spent each year I spend days digesting that into a spreadsheet. So I know where the, the changes are actually occurring. So when it gets to Congress, then the appropriators have to make their decisions and they have to deliberate and take on hearings from witnesses from those agencies, listening to what the initiatives are and how those initiatives are going to be manifest. And so you need to not only look at what the budgets are telling you, but what the appropriators are saying about the budgets and ultimately how many dollars are being um, set aside. An example of uh, the administration has tried a number of times to kill off some of these small agencies and they want to put money into the budget to actually do an orderly shutdown. 
and and kill off the agency because they don't think the agency has really served its purpose anymore. But Congress tends to have many different political interests, and they tend to hold on to those agencies. So what the budget tells you is going to happen isn't necessarily going to happen. You got to put the handicap on that. So that's the broad set of intelligence, but then you need to put it in the context of how the agencies behave once they get their appropriations. Who spends money? Who doesn't spend money? Who's dragging their feet? Who does the planning? Who does advanced planning? And you know, being able to pull all that together then sort of handicaps what that potential spending might be. Okay. Um, so you, you had an example um, in uh, FSIS and U- USDA, the Food Safety Inspection Service. Share that, if you would be so kind. Sure. Yeah. When you look at a particular agency, sub-agency like FSIS, Food Safety Inspection Service, there are a lot of characteristics that you can start to pick out of the budget and the empirical spending, what actually was uh, uh, reported in the federal procurement data system. So here's an agency that anticipates in the next year to be inspecting $159 billion, the B, pounds of meat, poultry, and eggs. And you reflect on what's been happening during this COVID pandemic, where there initially there were a lot of plants, particularly in poultry, but some in the beef area that were being shut down because they had COVID outbreaks. And they're still in a pretty risky situation. But these are situations that the inspectors actually go into. And unfortunately, you know, up to about June of this year, four of those inspectors, those USDA inspectors have died because of COVID. So now you start to say, what's happening generally? And where is this potentially going to create business opportunities? Well, look where those inspectors are. They're spread all over the country. Nearly every state has a number of inspectors. And because they're so geographically dispersed, when you start to think office space in geographically dispersed areas, being able to buy or access a supply chain in those areas, and then think about how they get from their offices to the plants. They drive vehicles. They've got 2,300 vehicles in FSIS. That's almost one for every five employees or so. That means fleet management, fleet maintenance. And then when you look at their IT spending, it's about $20 million. Not great, but significant. But again, widely dispersed. So, you know, this overall is a $1.3 billion budget, but realistically, how much of that is truly addressable? Of that large budget, $1.3 billion, only about 11% of it is actually addressable. About $121 million is going to contractors, new contractors and incumbent contractors. And of that, about $18 million is going into actual product spend, and the rest of it's going into services, a variety of services. So now you got to, this is the point of reality. You know, it's attractive to look at this very large budget, but knowing, you know, how it's going to boil down to what is going to go on contract then becomes your real 
information that you can build your strategic planning on. Okay. Uh, a quick aside, you, you mentioned the uh, 2,300 or so vehicles in the agency. The federal government has the largest land fleets in the world. And, you know, when you think about it, it should be kind of obvious. But there used to be a conference called Fed Fleet in the 80s, 90s, and even into the early 2000s. I don't know. And it was an every other year event, uh, the last uh, several years of it. And I think it died after that GSA Vegas debacle. <laughs> but I, I spoke at one, boy, 20 years ago, and it was magnificent because it had all of these vendors there that I was totally unaware of. Um, <laughs> so I mean, you, yeah, it could be a car dealer. It could be a manufacturer, an OEM. And and then it gets interesting where you have sometimes some of these aftermarket dealers. I actually did some consulting work for two aftermarket production companies that were building components to go on government vehicles. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, your local Jiffy Loop guy, if he happens to be near a significant federal facility, it's worth your time to go to the procurement office and say, hey, you know, I'll do your oil changes every X and we'll cut, you know, the price to this. And and you've got 1,500 extra vehicles you're servicing on a, what, quarterly basis. Hell, yeah. that's a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the addressable 11%. So talk about the, the, you know, if somebody decides to pursue that, how? Well, you need to look at the next two or three layers down. It's one thing to say, okay, broadly, they're going to spend X dollars on services. But what are they going to be spending their money on? You start drill down a couple more layers and you get down to things like IT modernization. Now, that's one of those situations where there is a government-wide or at least an executive branch-wide policy to invest in IT modernization. This was a situation in FSIS where they specifically asked for $4.7 million to do a fairly radical modernization of their IT environment. And Congress has already given them, at least from the House, because the Senate hasn't done much on appropriations, but the House has already given them the nod to spend this money because that investment hopefully means a reduced future life cycle costs. You know, they got a plan to do laboratory relocation. They have a, three major laboratories across the U.S., and one of them is located in the Midwest, and they plan to move that entire laboratory. So they've got to look for the space. They've got to do relocation work, basically picking up and moving, and they've got a lot of sensitive equipment associated in the laboratory that has to be moved. They need to set up in a new environment. It's a wet lab. So, you know, all of these things come into play when you start digging down even deeper into the detail to figure out what are they going to be spending their money on? How can I be positioned to take advantage of these initiatives? Okay. We're going to take our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll wrap up with Ray Bjorkland right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with uh, Ray Bjorkland of Birchgrove Consulting, birchgrove-consulting.com. 
Uh, Ray's been parsing this data for a long time and doing research for companies that have made, uh, at, at this point, probably hundreds of billions of dollars. Ray, there were a couple of points uh, when, when I saw your presentation on this, uh, the F- FSIS thing. If you decide that you are going to go after this addressable 11% from FSIS, how important is it to understand who the incumbents are, what the preferred vehicle for the spend is, and who do you need to influence? How do you do this? Yeah, well, I'll address those questions with a couple of examples. Uh, there was a client I had was a fairly well-established software company who had an offering for uh, handling financial transactions associated with medical work. And they said, oh, gee, you know, we have never done any work for the federal government, but we think what we have is really going to be good for the VA. Uh, I said, okay. And so they said, well, we're coming to town and we have an appointment with the CIO of VA. I said, that's good, but let's look a little deeper to figure out who are the real decision makers here. It's not the CIO typically. And so as I did a social network analysis, sort of an ecosystem analysis of all the players that could possibly affect this uh, opportunity that they were pursuing, I drilled it down and found a GS-15 in Austin, Texas, who was running the Financial Operations Center, who was a real decision maker. And I did this quantitatively. And I pointed out to him, I said, get in a car and go down to visit this woman in Texas, in Austin, and that will be your best influencer because she's got contractors around her who are providing a certain amount of influence. She has direct links with the data centers and so on. Well, they kind of ignored my (laughs) recommendation. And instead, they took an easy way out by finding a women-owned small business and being able to go in under her wings to do a pilot test. It didn't go anywhere. And now, this is about five years later, that GS-15 is a deputy assistant secretary for financial transformation within VA. Now, don't you think that was the right choice? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've both seen people get all excited about meeting the CIO of whatever agency they want to do business with. It's a, a photo op and they took my business card, Ray. So they must love me. Yeah. And they're going to call you next week. Hold uh, well, your what's breath. Import, important there is to start to understand what the buying ecosystem is. Certainly there are influencers out there, but they're also decision makers. Now, ultimate decision maker in every case whether you like it or not, it's the contracting officer. And that contracting officer is representing a buying activity, which is a servicing activity, which may or may not be what the actual user activity is and may or may not be in a direct connection to a program manager who may or may not be in a direct connection with a actual user who could be the ultimate influencer. So again, knowing those relationships and knowing that the CIO 
is sometimes in a really good position and is a very good decision maker and a good influencer. But the CIOs typically don't have the contracting people working for them. They are not necessarily aware of the contract vehicles that are typically used by that agency or that buying activity. There's so many dynamics that you need to be aware of to know how to navigate the ecosystem so you're making the right connections with the right people at the right time using the right tools. In other words, being contract vehicles, being an IDIQ, a GSA schedule, or something else. Okay. So when when you have a client that has a particularly useful service or product for that matter, and they don't have access to the necessary vehicle, what's your plan of action for them? Well, I would suggest that they get on a vehicle. And of course, if, if they have enough time, you know, almost anybody can get GSA schedule if they've got certain amount of competencies and a track record. So that is usually one way to get into it. But if you're kind of blocked out of a particular IDIQ because there's no on-ramp to be able to get into that IDIQ or to win the first time around, then you got to find a partner somebody that's on that contract vehicle who has had a track record with the particular agency that you want to sell to and is selling kind of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you can be complementary to what that particular contract holder is offering that agency. And then you can possibly make a connection. So through teaming, through partnering, you can get there. Okay. We're recording this on the 4th of August, so there's roughly uh, 56 days left, uh, 57 days left in the buying year, the federal fiscal year. How much of a myth is the spend it or lose it, and what's your advice to companies that are at present salivating over same Well, if you're selling a commodity or a commoditized service, the year end is pretty great place to be because that's where a lot of transactions occur. They may not be high dollar value, but, you know, there's money left over in the, the budget in a treasury account and it's time to spend that money. So spend it or lose it is an important factor, but a lot of people miss the point that you don't necessarily are forced into a spend it or lose it environment because many cases, the dollars appropriated by Congress are appropriated until the project is done, whenever that is, or until no longer needed, whenever that is. They're basically no year money. I mean, we look at DOD and we see the big, operations and maintenance budgets and you know look at the end of the year and and the billions of dollars that the army spends on O&M they may have 58 million dollars left over at the end of the year so that's a real spend it or lose it but there's so many other things going on in the government you have to know you know what the rules are associated with that particular appropriation because there may be money that's carrying on through multiple years it's the same dollars that were appropriated in this current year. Okay. 
I want to touch on on one more thing before I let you go. And the government is going to start this new thing, and they're going to devote X number of billions of dollars to it. IT modernization has been with us now for at least a decade, probably longer. And yes, there's progress being made. But explain the concept of government time. It depends. It depends. <laughs> exactly. There are, there are certainly some agencies that can move very quickly, very agile. I was fortunate to work on a, a project one time in the government where we had uh, 12 months and $10 million to make something happen. And we did $11.5 million and 13 months, but we made it happen. You know, we basically tracked missiles across the desert using a air traffic control radar. So, you know, things can happen very, very quickly in government time. And the notion of even agile development, use that term very loosely, it works. But many cases, it is a very long cycle. I tell clients, if you have something really new to offer to your particular target customers, it may take you 18 months to two years before you get any traction at all. So your ramp up time is very long and you have to be willing to set aside dollars to do that. And during that period, you have to do the marketing because you have to convince that particular target agency to write the plans, to write the budget requirement that is going to lead to that kind of spending You're going to have to help them kind of usher it through the budgetary approval process. And if you want to pay money for lobbyists, you know, you cross your fingers through the appropriations process. So that money will eventually get appropriated and apportioned down to that agency who then, if they haven't done any prior planning, is probably going to take six, nine months to get up to speed on running that project to be able to by what you're offering. So it can be a very long cycle. And if you've got something very new, very different, and the government's not even thought of it before, you've got a long road to hope. Ray, man, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, If you need the research done to give you a strategic direction, nobody that I know has done it longer, and few do it better than Ray Bjorklund. And if you want the marketing to go with it, that's where I come into play. So uh, drop Ray a line, uh, reach out to him through LinkedIn or through his website, birchgrove-consulting.com. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or Mark Amtower Gmail. And thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Your story, it lives in River City where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another. 
where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.